World Talk Radio Network. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Civil War was fought to music. Band music, field music, singing groups, pianos in the parlor, patriotic songs, sentimental songs, all kinds of music. Today, our guest Christian McWhorter will talk about battle hymns, the power and popularity of music in the Civil War. It's an introspective and academic look at the music that was played through the years 1861-1865 in the North and the South. Join us for Battle Hymns with Christian McWhorter today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. The third floor of the Brewster Building, looking out on a beautiful autumn afternoon in September 2012, but not speaking for the university, but nor the UNC system or its beleaguered and scandal-ridden flagship school off in Chapel Hill, nor us here at East Carolina, uh, just for myself, and I know our guest will do the same thing. We're here to talk today about music in the Civil War and nothing else. We'll start on that momentarily. Uh, but first, it's good to be back here at Civil War Talk Radio. This is the, I think, third show of the new season, the 2012-13 season. Been away for a little while through the summer and then came back. Harold Holzer was on. Uh, and then we had uh, John Michael Priest last week or two weeks ago. Last week, uh, unable to join you for a new show as I was visiting the Lincoln Studies Center, the annual meeting of the editorial board of that group at Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, one of the famous uh, Lincoln-Douglas debate, debate sites from 1858. It's always good to visit there. Uh, Rodney Davis and Doug Wilson are the two-man crew that really is the Lincoln Studies Center, and they have produced a series of incredible publications over the years. The, the landmark uh, Lincoln's, or rather Herndon's informants, in which they published all the work by the people that William Herndon spoke to, Lincoln's former law partner, spoke to after Lincoln's death, uh, and wrote to and collected information uh, from about Lincoln's early life. It's a really, really useful 
a piece of scholarship. They are collecting more of Herndon's writings, uh, bits and pieces he wrote about Lincoln that didn't make it into his biography, Herndon's Lincoln, uh, correspondence he had with his ghostwriter, Jesse Wyke, and others about Abraham Lincoln. And this material has never seen the light of day and has uh, new Lincoln stories in it. That's one of the projects they're working on, and we'll hopefully see it at some point. We talked about other projects I'm working on, uh, uh, something myself for them, hopefully, uh, to come out in, in well, who knows when. Uh, so lots of things going on. It's always good to, to commune with the other people at the Lincoln Studies Center. James Oakes, who's been on the show, has a new book coming out later this uh, uh, season in November or December. And with any luck, we'll get him back on the show to talk about his new book. Uh, Matt Pinsker's working on things at uh, Medford, others. So a very useful weekend. I got some some great ideas for things to do and uh, enjoyed working on that. So, uh, good to be back, though, here at uh, East Carolina and at Lincoln uh, at the uh, Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters. The show has uh, more shows lined up for the weeks ahead. Uh, Kevin Levin will be our guest next week, talking about the memories of the Battle of the Crater. Uh, He was on some years ago when he was just starting on that project, and we'll now see it between covers. Uh, Later in the semester, people like uh, Bobby Horton will be joining us to not only talk about, but actually perform perhaps some of the music of the Civil War, which is today's topic. And it looks like uh, much later, uh, in December, late November or December, we will have John Jakes, author of uh, North and South, the trilogy, which I admit I've never read. Uh, I'm not a fan of the the bodice ripper genre of historical fiction, and there's so much uh, history, so much nonfiction coming out, one can hardly keep up with with that alone. But my wife read it many years ago, tells me it's entertaining and worth reading, and now I have a reason to do so. So I'll be going through that. If you've read North and South and have thoughts about it, uh, send an email to to me here at East Carolina, or to the website, uh, or rather the Facebook page of impedimentsofwar.org. That's the companion website for the show. You can click on the PayPal button and send uh, cash to me, and I will share it with the uh, with Mark Gaffney, who operates the website and maintains it, tells us what's coming up next week and the week after. And uh, he and I use the funds to maintain the website, to buy books for the show, or as I stressed to him when he said uh, he had his expenses paid for the show up to a certain date, I said, well, then you can just buy anything with it. Take your spouse out to dinner if you want. Uh, Because it's not a a 501c3, it's not a charity, you're just giving us money. But we do mostly use it for the show, so that's very welcome and much appreciated. Usually we are able to get books uh, from publishers or from libraries, borrow them from libraries, but sometimes, especially with a new book, the only way to get it is to fork over your cash, and then I'm glad it's there. So, uh, check the website, and let me know what you think of North and South and what to ask uh, John Jakes. Uh, It'll be an interesting show, I'm sure. Uh, One other quick story before we start was that several weeks ago, at the beginning of the term, I spoke with the 
Sons of Confederate Veterans chapter in Little Washington, Washington, North Carolina, not Washington, D.C., a small town just east here of Greenville, and had the experience, and if I told the story already on the show, it's because because I fell and hit my head this summer and, and got some stitches, so now I'm excused from telling the same stories over and over, which I would do anyway, but that's my reason. Uh, but when I went to speak to them, I encountered the same thing that's happened at other SCV meetings, which is uh, locally here they say the three different pledges, one to the North Carolina flag, one to the confederate flag or a confederate flag and one to the american flag and knowing it was coming this time they handed out little sheets of paper with the words to the north carolina pledge which otherwise nobody would know i presume certainly i don't know what it is uh i was able to prepare my reaction because i I got caught short on this in front of myself standing at attention to the confederate flag which uh one can have one's views on the causes and meaning of the war but uh, I have one national flag, and it's the American flag, and that's the only uh, national allegiance that I care to pledge. So uh, this time when they did the North Carolina flag, I was politely silent. If I have to choose a state, it would be my birth state, which is Michigan. I'm not just going to go around selling myself to any state I happen to live in, like a cheap state floozy. Uh, so I didn't say anything about the North Carolina flag. And when they got to the Confederate flag, I discreetly but uh, uh, firmly sat back down because I'm not pledging allegiance to that flag and I I don't see how any current American citizen can do that but there you go Uh, and then resumed standing and proudly said our American Pledge of Allegiance and nobody said anything about it and I didn't say anything about it I went ahead with the talk and people were polite and and actually quite enthusiastic in their response to my talk on Lincoln. Turns out they don't all like Lincoln uh, in the sense of Confederate veterans, but their questions and comments were mostly uh, based on uh, a thorough knowledge of facts. Not all the facts were accurate, but but they knew them well, and there was uh, it, it was a very good discussion and spirited. And as always, I learned something uh, from any such discussion, so I appreciated it, and it was uh, civil and uh, intelligent and historically based, and I enjoyed the evening thoroughly. But the the, the pledge thing gets me every time. Well, uh, today we're talking. Uh, uh, we'll we'll talk a little bit uh, as we go through this about how the music of the Civil War still lives in modern culture. But we'll start at the beginning with the war itself. Uh, with the author of a new book called Battle Hymns, The Power and Popularity of Music in the Civil War, and it is written by uh, Christian McWhorter. Professor McWhorter, are you there? I am. How are you? Good. Thank you for being on the show. Well, Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, We've actually kind of touched a little bit before. At least you've touched my inner circle. You've interviewed... my uh, my dissertation advisor uh, George Rabel in the past, and you've uh, interviewed my current boss Daniel Stoll. So uh, I guess uh, it was only a matter of time before you got around to me. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm glad to do that. Um, so you, if you work for Dan Stoll, that means you're with the uh, an Abraham Lincoln Papers project. Uh, yes, I am. I uh, I do research for the project uh, at the National Archives in D.C. So I'm I'm calling you from Arlington in my apartment now, but I uh, I just got home from a, a meeting with Daniel, actually. He's in town from, 
from Springfield uh, for the week. So yeah, well, well, do give him my best next time you see him. Uh, he has been on the show. I, I worked with him when I was in, in Fort Wayne at the old Lincoln Museum there. Uh, uh-huh. Dan and I crossed paths regularly when he was doing the legal papers in Springfield. Uh, so uh, that that's a wonderful project. What's happening with the the papers of Abraham Lincoln Project these days? Uh, well, us, us folks in D.C. are still uh, trudging along, uh, looking for documents. I've been with the project since spring of uh, 2010, um, and I've been assigned to all kinds of stuff. I was on the Indian records for a while uh, and found a, a original Lincoln letter in Lincoln's hand that, uh, that Basler didn't find when he did the collected works in, in that collection. Um, and then we're also, you know, doing incoming correspondence, so I found a a lot of stuff in there, uh, and then I got assigned to Commissary General of Prisoners where I found uh, 3,000 uh, different letters to Lincoln, some of which endorsed by him from usually Confederate women uh, trying to get, um, uh, you know, husbands or, or fathers uh, out, of, out of POW camps by saying, you know, that it was all a big mistake when they joined the Confederate Army and they really weren't secession and, and yada yada yada. And so there's a there's a few of us doing that out here, and then uh, off in Springfield, they're uh, busily transcribing uh, and uh, annotating, um, you know, what we're what we're finding and what we've already found. Uh, we're hoping, you know, right now the legal papers are up online. That's our first series, and we're hoping to get our second series, which is everything up to the presidency. Uh, online very soon, but as far as researching the presidency goes, I think we're going to be uh, busy at that for a, a long, long while. Well, that, that is just a, a, a spectacular project. When uh, the listeners know, I, I've, I've, I've talked with Dan on the show. I've, I'm sure I've talked with others uh, about it. That when it began, there was some idea they'd produce a few volumes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was back in, in the '80s, and. Uh, the technology has changed, and uh, the internet happened, and uh, the idea now that the the entire collections can be put online, that, that they can be scanned into high quality images, and then linked in various ways, and just turned into a tool of uh, such incredible usefulness that it, it's hard to imagine how scholarship was done before this. Well, that uh, you know, it's one of the reasons uh, you know, without sounding you know, the risk of hyperbole. Uh, I think we're going to be the largest such collection, I think, period, but in particular online. And, of course, it's going to be free uh, when it finally goes up. Um, and I, I kind of personally had a stake in this because with the book, um, I, uh, I, I did a lot of my research online using various databases because music and terms relating to music are so rarely uh, indexed or, you know, in finding aids. And so being able to, to look at newspapers and periodicals especially uh, was critical for me. And so the, to be able to, to produce such a resource uh, for Lincoln, uh, you know, I think will just be a, a huge boon to, uh, to you know, academics and, and non-academic scholars alike. Uh, and, and, and I'd be remiss if I didn't, you know, ask your listeners if, if anyone out there uh, you know, ha- knows of a Lincoln document that can be to or from Lincoln or, or uh, has one themselves or, you know, please let us know. Uh, a huge number of Lincoln documents are floating out there in public hands and, uh, you know, or in private hands, I'm sorry, they're not in repositories and we have very little 
way of knowing where those are. So if, if, uh, if people could, could let us know and, and, and send those our way, we are always appreciative. All, all we're going to do is scan them. We're not going to take them from you or anything. So um, we're, yeah, we're, we're right. just trudging along here. Well, that, that is, that's true. I, I'll echo that. Absolutely. If people know, if you know of a Lincoln document, if you're a collector or know of a collector, and they haven't already shared what they have with uh, the Lincoln Papers project, right. do so. Get it into, uh, as I said, all you do is scan it. Uh, no harm is done. Yeah. And then you've got that. I, I know the, the papers we had at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne were all scanned at one time. Oh, yeah, we've uh, really, the, the National Archives is all we we haven't done yet, um, at least in the United States. I, I know Daniel was just in Japan doing a bunch of documents. Um, but, uh, yeah, people can find us at papersofabrahamlincoln.org, and uh, and we've got a Facebook page, too, that, that I run. Uh, right. So I update it regularly, so feel free to like us on Facebook. Well, that that is, it. it is just... Just it is hard to grasp how how much this brings uh, brings out into the open. My mentor David Donald had mm-hmm. a an assistant type in all of Basler into onto disks or in, 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 onto a computer uh, because it was pre-internet days when he wrote uh, the Lincoln that came out in 1995. Mm-hmm. He had a searchable version of Basler before anyone else because oh, he had wow. it done. He had a grant to get it done. Yeah. Um, now, today, everybody has that. You just, the University of Michigan, yeah, Michigan has, has, yeah. has, has Basler online. And when your project goes online, we'll have access to so much more. So it's all there, but uh, you know, in not just in our lifetimes, in the last decade or two, there's been a huge leap forward in what we can reach. Oh, yeah. Even, I mean, even with my own project... When I started, you know, doing my research, which, uh, let's say, you know, 06, the number of resources that became available to me as I was doing my research, uh, it was just exponential. And, and, you know, it, I, it really was a good time to kind of jump on board a topic like this because just all these new resources started popping up. And, and I, I really don't think I'd have been able to, to finish. You know, I wouldn't be able to do a project like this really before the internet. I mean, I obviously still went to archives and I looked at books and I made a bunch of interlibrary loan requests and stuff like that. But, but um, being able to to do a lot of searchable stuff using Google Books and and different databases and and stuff like was was really critical to my research. And it's it's partially why my my bibliography so ended up being you know so robust. So it was it was a boon to me. I'm I'm you know living proof that this internet revolution is good stuff. It, it it is. Those of us who who predate it occasionally will wistfully look at some volume on the shelf and think, <laughs> "Oh, you know, I looked so hard to find, you know, Cy Clegg and his, uh, uh, you know, story of Cy Clegg and Shorty or something like that." And mm-hmm. I finally got a copy. But now any anyone can just you know find it on Google Books and read it tomorrow, uh, or read <laughs> it this minute. Uh, <laughs> well, the the things I we had to hunt for are usually there. I'm going to interrupt myself and say, we're going to take a short break now. And now it's online. (laughs) Yes. We're going to take a short break and come right back and get to talking about Civil War music. I'm eager to do that. We're talking today with Christian McWhirter. His book is Battle Hymns, The Power and Popularity of Music in the Civil War. And this is Civil War Talk Radio.
you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Everyone has a belief system that they stand by. It's comfortable and safe. If you believe that a hot stove will burn you, you won't touch it. Sometimes beliefs like this are practical, but some belief systems may be protecting you a little too much. These are the ones that might be holding you back. There's a secret to changing your belief system, and by doing so, achieve goals and live a happier, better life. Start by tuning in to Subconscious Beliefs with Dr. Hein Lambricks, broadcasting live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Christian McWhirter, author of Battle Hymns, The Power and Popularity of Music in the Civil War. When you listen to this show every week, listeners, you hear a few notes uh, introducing each segment uh, on the banjo from... Uh, that, that everybody recognizes just from those first two or three notes. It's, of course, uh, Dixie. And when we fade out, you hear a few notes on the guitar that are the melody of the battle cry of freedom. So there's music everywhere, including here on uh, Civil War Talk Radio. But there, there's much more to the music of the war. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, uh, Christian, you say in your, your book that this is the first war really fought to music. What what do you mean by that? Um, <laughs> basically, just music was was you know omnipresent during the Civil War. Um, I kind of went into it with that impression because uh, popular culture gives you that impression. You know, whenever you um, you see Civil War movies or or the Ken Burns series, there's just all these. Civil War songs that just seem to be constantly being played in the background, you know, uh, when when they're in camp or wherever, and um, it didn't take long for me to figure out that 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 really was the case, um, and music was this kind of an intrinsically important uh, aspect of, of the war for for you know soldiers and civilians alike. People, um, you know, they played it constantly, they heard it constantly, uh, and the songs that they they embraced. They weren't, you know, they weren't just uh, ephemera. They 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 took on real meaning for these people and, and helped them deal with the issues of the war. Helped them kind of define the war for themselves. Helped them kind of cope with the war. And and in a lot of cases, these songs, as a result, took on lives of their own that were, um, you know, sometimes unintended by even by their authors because they just got so attached to the conflict and and uh, were you know embraced by so many people for for various reasons. I thought it was interesting to read about how some of these songs, um, as you point out, have 
uh, have meanings to them that that uh, the the ideology within uh, a song could matter. Uh, hmm. People listen to the lyrics and then uh, responded so that that a song like like John Brown's Body, for example, mm-hmm. uh, could be very controversial during the war. Oh, absolutely. And, and John Brown's Body was, was probably my biggest surprise um, in my research, just how popular it was. Uh, Bell Urban Wiley, uh, way back when, argued that it was the most popular song with, with Union soldiers, but um, you, you don't normally hear that. You hear that it's the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and, and it's always, Battle Hymn of the Republic is always kind of represented as a Union anthem. But, but John Brown's Body was, was sung far more frequently, and, and it's, it's a really interesting piece because it's it's um on the one hand this song is about john brown and although it wasn't kind of what was kind of originally written about john brown it was an inside joke but um by the time it becomes popular to everybody else in the country you know they when they're saying john brown's by they're talking about john brown the the radical abolitionist and um i it's hard to know really what to make of that whether that 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 could indicate uh, I think it does among some Union soldiers that, you know, right from the get-go, they had some understanding uh, that, this, that this war was about slavery. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to paint a picture of just because they were singing this song, they were, you know, every, all the Union soldiers were, were staunch abolitionists. And I think in some cases, they just liked the song because it, 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 ticked, off, uh, it ticked off Confederates because they were singing about John Brown. I've got this story in the book where... There's one of these incidents you hear about where the two armies are encamped next to each other and, and they're playing each other's songs at each other, right? You always hear about these stories. So one side plays Dixie, you know, Clarence play Dixie, and the Union plays the Valkyrie of Freedom and, and so on and so forth. And then the Union Army plays John Brown's body and the Confederate Army opens fire. Uh, <laughs> so, you, know, you kind of go up a notch when you, when you, you sing John Brown's body. Um, and, and again, it just has this weird kind of story where it just kind of becomes an anthem and then it gets transformed in the battle hymn of the Republic and still today is considered, you know, an American anthem. And it all comes from this, um, this odd little song, uh, that just because of the circumstances of the war really, um, really takes off. Uh, and so it, it, it was a really interesting case, uh, for me to kind of follow how that song became popular, how, you know, different, um, uh, people interpreted it, and, and, and what they did with it. Uh, the other thing about it is, is yeah, it was contested. In, in People didn't like that they were singing about John Brown. Some people didn't like they were singing about John Brown, so they tried to change the lyrics. But uh, even people who, who didn't change the John Brown aspect of it changed the lyrics. One of the things about Civil War music is, is you know, lyrics were kind of up for grabs. And so uh, it, John Brown's advice is just three lines repeated, and then, you know, um, his soul is marching on, so you could you could graft whatever you wanted onto that, and so that that also helped it be you know make it popular, and and that was the case with lots of war songs. It was easy to just kind of throw whatever ideas you want into it. There was no set, you know, lyrics for a lot of these songs. The the, the folk process certainly was, was right. in play there. It was interesting. Exactly. You you write that uh, the original John Brown of the song was just a a soldier named John Brown, and his, his messmates were teasing him with a, a song they made up, and right. <laughs> Uh, it, it caught fire. I think it, it's very interesting too. The 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 process, the, the way this does tie into abolitionism as uh, a factor in the war, the the role of, of ending slavery as a a Union war aim, which, as you just pointed out, was not something Union soldiers necessarily shared in 1861. 
No. But as as they become radicalized by the the process of fighting the South, uh, many of them be, become anti-slavery. And this song is a perfect example, as you say, that people sing it not because they were abolitionists to begin with, but if it makes their enemy mad, then they're okay with that. And sure, and uh, and the and the songs also help that process. You know, if if you're singing about John Brown, I've got this one guy who writes in his diary. You know, he's singing about John Brown all the time. And the more he sings about him, he starts to identify with him, right? He marches through Harper's Ferry, you know, and his, his unit sings the song, and he starts to think to himself, you know, well, maybe Brown was right. Maybe, you know, Brown isn't the one we should be upset about. It, you know, he was already making cause against, you know, these Southerners who, you know, their, their slave system is what's ripped this country apart. Maybe we should, uh, you know, maybe I need to reconsider my thoughts on Brown. Maybe he was right. Maybe slavery is a, is a real problem. Uh, and I think the same is true of the other major Union anthem too, the Battle uh, Battle Cry Freedom. Um, you know, although you know it's the Union forever, uh, you know they they're shouting the Battle Cry of Freedom. And and I you know the guy who wrote it was a staunch abolitionist, and and he was very good. George Frederick Root, he was very good at, at subtly putting abolitionist messages in his music. Uh, and I think in the case of the Battle Cry of Freedom, the freedom he meant in there was definitely. Uh, you know, an abolitionist, you know, abolition of slavery, freedom for for slaves. Uh, and again, I think as soldiers sing the song more and more, you know, they, that that also gets you know incorporated into their own ideology, and they start to to adopt a more abolitionist tone. So I think uh, I think the songs definitely help push that along with uh, with Union soldiers and Union civilians too. The 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 songs take off on the home front too. Now, Battle Cry of Freedom, you, you say, it would be number one on the Union hit parade, ahead even of John Brown's body. Uh, and that was written by, by Root. Mm-hmm. Were, but there were other... Uh, so, so we have John Brown's body, which really emerges from, from the folk process. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you have, uh, and then you have the, the lyrics layered on by, by Julia Ward Howe later, but they don't become as popular. During the war, you've got uh, Root actually writing as a commercial venture, "Battle Cry of Freedom." Yeah, uh, were there a lot of other publishers and songwriters who who tried to to write the songs that the soldiers and the home families would sing? Absolutely, um, and uh, I mean on both sides, but uh, because because of the blockade in the South, the, the South kind of has an explosion of songwriting early in the war that then you know kind of dissipates as paper becomes more difficult to get, but in the North. Um, Root, Root is probably the most successful, and I'd, I'd, I'd put a slight modification to what you said. I would say Battle Cry of Freedom is, is the most popular on the home front for most of the war, but John Brown's uh. body is certainly more, more popular among the soldiers. But, okay. um, but Root, uh, Root writes several uh, hits um, just before the Battle Mother and, and Tramp, Tramp, Tramp. Um, but one of the people Root actually employs in his publishing house, Root and Katie, uh, is Henry Clay Work, who's also a, a, a colossally, you know, successful um, Civil War songwriter. He uh, his biggest hit is "Marching Through Georgia," uh, which kind of becomes the Union, you know, end of the war anthem. Their kind of triumphal song. Um, again, very abolitionist. Uh, you know, turning um, turning uh, Georgia into a you know a highway of freedom. Uh, but he earlier in the war wrote uh, wrote "Kingdom Coming," which is also a huge hit that you still hear sometimes and. And its sequel, uh, Babylon Has Fallen. Um, but it wasn't just these patriotic guys either. You get, um, you know, sentimental music was also big in the Civil War. Uh, and probably the biggest success story for a single song was, um, 
Weeping Sad and Lonely or When This Cruel War is Over, uh, which was uh, written by Charles uh, Carol Sawyer, uh, wrote the lyrics, and, and Henry Tucker wrote the, the most commonly heard uh, musical setting for it. And he was from New York, and, and estimates are that that song sold about a million copies, which for 19th century numbers is huge. Now, that's a million copies for the whole 19th century. That's not just for the war years, but I would suspect most of those uh, were probably sold during the war. So there's, there's a whole collection of these songwriters who are really just coming out of the kind of growing American music industry that's, that's really been just coming into its own before the war. And then when the war hits, there's just an explosion of, of, of this, you know, amateur and professional music because you have this kind of, uh, you know, this, this seed of the American music industry that's just budding when the war starts and the war kind of gives it that, that you know, that push that, that makes it into, into the beginnings of, you know, now kind of the American music industry juggernaut. I think, I think the roots of that, a lot of that are, are in, the, in the war with a lot of these songwriters and the popularity of these songs. The uh, one of the things I found interesting that I didn't know about Civil War music was the effort uh, early on in the North, and sort of a comparable effort later in the South, but especially in the North, a uh, an effort to replace the Star Spangled Banner with yeah. a national anthem that's a little more singable. It doesn't have those outrageous high notes and <laughs> right. huge uh, range, multi-octave range that almost none of us can, can sing very well at ballgames. Right. Uh, so, so that's something we've all known for a long time. We could use a more singable anthem. <laughs> but the effort didn't go very well, as I understand. No, and, and, and before I get into that, one of the things that surprised me, I'm Canadian, and so it, it surprised me as a Canadian that Americans would, would have had a problem with the Star Spangled Banner, because I, 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 I probably don't want to go on record saying this, but I always thought, oh, Canada was kind of lame, and I always kind of liked the Star Spangled Banner because it seemed so much more dramatic. Uh, and it never occurred to me as a Canadian that Americans would be unhappy with it, and I was surprised to find... First of all, that 19th century Americans were unhappy with it, and then, to, as I you know, researched that, that apparently a lot of Americans are still really unhappy with it, um, kind of surprised me. But like you said, it makes sense. It is difficult to sing. Um, not many Americans are aware of the, the, you know, what, it, what it actually means. It's about you know, Fort McHenry and the uh, War of 1812. Um, but, uh, but, it, yeah, it also the descends war, from um, a, a British drinking song. Yeah, and, and the first stanza ends with a question really mark. It as a national anthem. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but again, you know, these, these things hadn't really occurred to me, so I started researching it. Um, and yeah, a group of, uh, of kind of New York intellectuals uh, got together at the beginning of the war. And uh, now, now, the Star-Spangled Banner, the, to, to be clear, was not yet the national anthem, of course. And that there was, there was a, kind of a selection of national anthems uh, in 1860. There were kind of five prominent anthems, uh, you know, Hail Columbia, the Star-Spangled Banner, uh, America, or, or commonly called My Country Tis of Thee, uh, Red, White, and Blue, and, and what I leave out, oh, Yankee Doodle, and Yankee Doodle. And, um, you know, the, this, this group of New York intellectuals, decide, and, and, and I was never able to find out who was in charge of this whole thing. He just hired these people, this group, including George Templeton Strong and others, uh, to do this contest where people would submit uh, you know, potential anthems that were considered more noble and more fitting to the times uh, because they thought that the five options they had were so wretched. Uh, and it, it falls apart pretty fast. The press is very hard on it. People, everyone, everyone dumps on it immediately saying you can't, you know, 
you can't have a have an anthem. Uh, you, know, you can't buy an anthem out of nowhere. You know, it has to kind of be a, a, a product of the people. It has to rise up like the Marseillaise in France. You know, be like a popular thing, which which John Brown's body kind of fits that mold. Um, but they. Um, they end up getting a lot of submissions. I, I forget the exact number now. I think they get 200 and something. Uh, but, but Strong says most of them were terrible, and they threw most of them into the trash. Uh, and they ended up with 20 finalists, and they never really could figure out what to do with these 20 finalists. And they were going to have a concert, but then they decide that was a bad idea. And so they eventually throw up their hands and say, okay, nobody wins. None <laughs> of these are good enough. And, uh, and the whole thing falls apart uh, in, the, in the summer of... Uh, uh, of 62 and uh or wait summer 61 sorry and that's and that's it and then it just kind of goes away but it remains a a kind of a joke uh for i think most people um and even members george Templeton strong who you know is usually pretty droll uh in, in all his writings about it just complains about it and and how silly he thinks this whole thing is and so it it had problems right from the get-go uh and it, it ends up being kind of a fiasco by the time it's done we're we're did any good songs come out of it? Or is it, do we know any of the songs today, or are they all just... No, I never... Track? All they published were lyrics. Uh, one of the members, Richard White, who's a literary critic, uh, he publishes a book uh, out of the whole experience called National Hymns. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the subtitle, but something like How They Are Written and How They Are Not Written. Uh, <laughs> it's basically a lesson on how to write a national hymn uh, you know, based on his experience on this national hymn committee, uh, and he gives lots of lyrics. The main, what they wanted to do, some of them wanted to publish a book afterwards with the worst ones that were submitted, basically just to make fun of how bad they were, which again gives you some kind of mindset of, of or of the mindset of what these guys were, were like that were doing this. Uh, but that didn't get published, but instead he wrote this kind of dissertation on it, and in it, he, he prints a lot of the lyrics. There's, there's, no, um, there's no music. And, and the lyrics are pretty bad, and, and I don't think anything came out. Apparently, one of the guys who thought that he was kind of unfairly, you know, didn't win, apparently staged a concert afterwards where he sang his anthem, but I was never able to find what his anthem was or what it sounded like. So if, if something famous did come out of it, uh, you know, I don't know about it, but I, I suspect nothing did. <laughs> Uh, you, you you do reprint that uh, an amusing poem from Vanity Fair on, on how to write a patriotic song. <laughs> yeah, includes every cliche in every yeah, song. Uh, so you can assume you they did the do, same thing yeah. there. Well, the Confederates had some trouble with their anthem uh, lyrically mm-hmm. as well. We're going to take another break and come back and talk about uh, Dixie and where it came from and where it went. Uh, We're talking today with Christian McWhirter. He is the author of Battle Hymns, The Power and Popularity of Music in the Civil War. We'll be back in just a minute with more of Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. World 
Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Christian McWhirter, author of Battle Hymns: The Power and Popularity of Music in the Civil War. We've been talking about uh, Union songs, the uh, battle cry of freedom, and John Brown's body in the previous segment. We'll talk a little bit about some Confederate music, but uh, first a question, uh, Christian, are, do you uh, play music yourself? No, I, I get asked that a lot, and, and, and I think sometimes musicologists get, get bothered that I don't actually play music myself, uh, but I wrote this book. But no, I've just been really interested in music, uh, and uh, it was it, I was actually having trouble. This was based on my dissertation, and, and uh, I was going to give up on the Civil War and, and start being a, a music historian, uh, and then eventually kind of dawned on me that I could, I could put my two interests together uh, and do a book on uh, on the Civil War and music at the same time, and and was shocked that it, it you know hadn't really a social history of, of Civil War music or cultural history hadn't really been done before. So although although I don't play myself, I have a uh, a strong enough interest that that it, it you know kind of carried me through this project. So you'll you'll have to uh, you'll have to wait till you have Bobby Horton on to get someone who actually uh, knows how to play the stuff. <laughs> well, that that uh, comes up. We're having uh, a lecture here at, at East Carolina in a few weeks by uh, Laurent Dubois of Duke University, talking about the the banjo as an example of cultural transmission from Africa uh-huh. to the Caribbean to the United States. And uh, the professor who organized it told me to remind people it's it's an academic lecture. People don't ask if you can bring your banjo to the show. It's not. <laughs> Uh, and I am looking across the office, and my banjo is here. And my fiddle is at home, but uh, I've been told don't bring any instruments. It's this is history, not a jam session. Uh, well, I wish I could. I never had any talent for it, so I'm jealous that you uh, you can actually play the banjo. But. Oh, believe me, talent has nothing to do with it. Uh, <laughs> so. The banjo is is the foolproof instrument uh, in many ways. But uh, let me ask you about the. The uh, a song that does sound great on the banjo uh, when in an open tuning is sure. Dixie, the the Confederate anthem. The Confederacy starts uh, if they're going to start a nation, they need a national anthem, and right. they they come upon Dixie pretty quickly. But as you point out, it's it's written by a Yankee, and the words have nothing to do with patriotism or high mindedness. Uh, how did this become their national song? Yeah, Dixie's almost—it's a almost a historical accident that makes uh, Dixie, 
you know the confet the unofficial you know, always have the unofficial confederate i'm not sure the the you know the the southern elite ever uh, ever really embrace it um but it's similar to john brown's body it just kind of has a life of its own the the song you know is written by a, a minstrel one of the founders of minstrelsy daniel decatur emmett in new york city in in 1859 you know before there's even a secession crisis uh and it's it's Definitely a minstrel song, the way it sounds and the way its lyrics go. Um, and it, uh, it just, I mean, it's almost nonsensical, the lyrics. So you, it's just a bunch of minstrel cliches all kind of thrown in there uh, over well, this melody. Can I ask you, what about, what, what do you mean when you say a minstrel song? What, what is, what are minstrel shows like? What, what, what role does that play in American culture? Right, sure. Minstrelsy uh, was, was, uh, other than maybe sentimental music was, was the most popular genre of, of not just American music, but American kind of stage performance or popular culture uh, going into the Civil War. And, and, and minstrelsy, uh, really a couple decades going into the Civil War, uh, minstrelsy is um, it's a performance style where you, you, know, you paint yourself up in blackface and uh, you know, a, a white person goes up on stage and uh, pretends to be uh, African American uh, or a group of, of white performers usually pretend to be African Americans uh, to comical effect. They'll get you know it, it's it's kind of a fundamentally racist style. There's all kinds of other things going on, but at its, at its core, uh, you basically get up there, you do a, a kind of comical uh, version of of a, of a Southern African American accent. Uh, they'll do little skits that will usually. Uh, revolve around the kind of perceived uh, mental inferiority of African Americans, uh, and uh, or, or sometimes they'll be very cunning. Uh, these kind of two archetypes emerge, and, and there's a whole style of music that comes along with that. And so originally these songs, um, these songs kind of start as more crude. Uh, it, Emmett's uh, old Dan Tucker is, is one of the first big minstrel hits, uh, and then eventually Stephen Foster comes along, one of the most famous. American songwriters uh, and kind of combine sentimentalism and minstrelsy, and you get songs like "Oh Susanna," um, and these songs again are usually they're supposed to represent the experiences of Southern blacks. Uh, they're supposed to be kind of funny and sweet, um, and it's still thriving going into the war. So Emmett, who's one of the founders of the movement, is is working for a, a, another group of minstrels. He's writing songs for them in New York, and they ask him to write a piece. Uh, for a particular part of the show called the walk around, where basically the, men, the the performers will parade around the stage playing their instruments, uh, and the song he writes for them he claims over one night, um, and and where he got this, there's some debate over where he got the song from. It may have partially he may have partially got the idea from a family in Ohio, a black family in Ohio. I should make that clear. Uh, and, but either way, um, you know he writes them this song, and apparently it just instantly becomes a hit. Uh, in the North, again, emphasizing the North. Uh, and it stays a hit for, uh, in the North, really, uh, uh, throughout the war. It, it loses some of its popularity in the North as uh, it becomes, you know, kind of recognized as the Southern Anthem. But then once the war ends, it gets picked up by the North again. You know, Lincoln famously reclaims it as a prize of war. But um, it gets adopted by the South, Mainly due to timing, because the you know, minstrelsy wasn't that big in the South. They weren't that interested in seeing people pretend to be African Americans when they had the, you know, the real deal uh, right outside their windows, uh, compared to some Northerners who didn't. Um, but Dixie uh, kind of starts to make headway in the South right around the end of 1860, and it's got, even though it really doesn't have much to do with 
consider nationalism as a whole, it's got this first verse and chorus. Uh, you know, um, I wish I was in the land of cotton. Old time there's not or not forgotten. And then you know, I wish I was in Dixie. Um, in Dixieland, the most important line: In Dixieland, I'll take my stand to live and die in Dixie. Uh, and so Southerners start to pick it up just as the secession crisis is breaking out. And so it, it kind of you have all these Southerners who need an anthem. They've ripped all the Union anthems, you know, the old anthems like the Star Spangled Banner, other songbooks, and they need a new anthem. Uh, and so Dixie kind of fits the bill, and so these these military bands in particular start playing it as they they enlist in the Confederate Army, and then it gets kind of an accidental boost because uh, when Jefferson Davis is inaugurated in Montgomery, the band leader that's uh, you know chosen to to provide the music for his inauguration, uh, somebody recommends he play Dixie because it's this new song that's really popular, and so he plays Dixie twice. During Davis's inauguration, his name is uh, Herman Frank Ar- Herman Frank Arnold, excuse me, um, and that kind of unofficially gives it the you know stamp of government approval, and so then after that, Dixie isn't just getting played by bands and and on the home front, it also starts to get played at kind of official functions when you know Confederate flags are raised, it's played in Richmond when you know Virginia secedes, and it it picks up a life of its own and and ends up kind of accidentally becoming the the Confederacy's anthem. Although, again, it never gets kind of the official stamp of approval. Uh, there, Davis is rumored to have said he liked it, and he supposedly had a music box that played it, but he never officially uh, endorsed it as a Confederacy's anthem. In the years after the war, when the United Daughters of the Confederacy become the guardians of the lost cause and, right. and transmit uh, their version of the memory of the war, uh, they're also very much into the mid-century Victorian uh, uh, cultural values. Mm-hmm. So this, so the lyrics to Dixie, as you point out, are not really very uplifting. Uh, and so they, by the late 19th century, early 20th century, there's a movement to rewrite the, the lyrics to make it a, a more appropriate national anthem. Uh, how did that go? It didn't go well. Um, yeah, they're they're bothered by Dixie uh, because there you know there's this effort to create this lost cause narrative of the Civil War, and music becomes they incorporate music into that um, really early, right after the war. But then the UDC picks it up because, and especially Dixie, because they've got this song that by the time you get to the turn of the 20th century is a, is a you know, international hit. Uh, any, anyone knows Dixie most countries, at least in the Western world, you go to, people know Dixie, so they've got this tool uh, to endorse the Confederacy, or the, you know, the former Confederacy, uh, but its lyrics don't make any sense, uh, and it doesn't really have much to do with Confederate nationalism, so there's this movement that starts at, uh, in Alabama uh, to change the words of Dixie and, and create more appropriate versions, and it's similar to the National Hymn Contest I talked about earlier, where they uh, they they get UDC members in particular to submit new lyrics, uh, and they get some old historical ones. There was a there was one from the war that was the most popular alternative to Dixie by Confederate General Albert Pike, uh, and they they kind of they choose that as one of theirs too. But they they end up with a uh, I think twenty potential versions of Dixie. Uh, the national UDC picks it up and forms an official Dixie committee. Uh, and it looks like the UDC is going to go ahead with this, and the, the Confederate veterans who are still kicking around at that point, uh, they, they put a stop to it. They, um, they say, no, 
we don't care what the lyrics are. This is the song that we marched through the war to. This is the song that we fought with. We do not change the lyrics of Dixie. And so they start to get pushed back right away from the, the UCV, the United Confederate Veterans. And, and then even more bad luck for the UDC, Emmett dies during this campaign. And so there's kind of a national uh, mourning for Emmett and celebration of his most famous song, uh, which further kind of buries the UDC's effort and, and, and gives it a bit of a black mark. So that the, the attempt to officially change the words of Dixie, at least within the, the UDC, fails. Uh, and and it, it, it's still the case. I actually I, I just gave a talk on the book at William and Mary, uh, and there was a UDC member in the audience, and I just offhand mentioned the, this whole story with the Alabama UDC, and she came up to me afterwards and said they still sing Dixie and they still sing the original lyrics. And I asked uh, her if they sang it in dialect, and she said, "Of course not." And I said, "Well, do you sing the whole, uh, the whole, you know, all the verses of Dixie?" And she said, "Oh no, we just sing the first verse and chorus." So proves again that still the UDC still can't quite, you know, and and. and uh, still can't quite get around the 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 rest of that song. It's 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 problematic and has has nothing to do with the Confederacy. So it's it's still a problem for for those who well, want to sing it. <laughs> I mean, the song, uh, as as you say in the last part of your book, is still uh, both inspiring and problematic. Uh, mm-hmm. In the the twentieth century, it becomes identified with other political causes when the uh, University of Mississippi uses it as a, a fight song and other the Citadel likewise and other uh, institutions during the era of uh, resistance to desegregation mm-hmm. it, it starts to take on other meanings and, and today it, it holds some of these other meanings but you had a very interesting uh, discussion and, and we just have a couple minutes but sure. uh, uh, Elvis Presley uh, yeah. in some way solves this problem what, what, how, does, how did he play Dixie in concert? Presley uh, Presley had a hit with uh, with a song called American Trilogy, which I'm sure uh, most of your listeners have have heard at least once or twice. Where he he sang um, this this very he, the song starts as Dixie, which he plays very um, very softly like a dirge, uh, and it builds up and it builds up, and then he transitions into the Battle Hymn of the Republic, uh, which he sings very triumphantly. Uh, and then mellows out again and sings uh, what uh, what he thinks is a slave spiritual, although it's really just an African American spiritual called "All My Trials," uh, and then goes back into the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And, I, and what Elvis what Elvis was doing is this is this is coming out of the '60s. He was trying to um, kind of show unity in the United States and 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 show common you know common cause between the North and South and African Americans after all the division you've had during the, the 60s by, by putting these three pieces together. And, and, and usually the, the, the spiritual usually gets tossed out, but a lot of these bands now in, in, in the South and in other places, if they're going to play Dixie, they'll usually pair it with the Battle Hymn of the Republic because uh, it, it, it does kind of then create this different, uh, you know, where, well, you're honoring the South, but you're also honoring the United States, and, and you're, you're showing the reconciliation of the two regions. Um, is is you know what's behind it now at Ole Miss they had problems because then Ole Miss students started chanting the South shall rise again where in the Battle of the Republic you would have said his truth is marching on so that 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 became problematic and they had the chancellor had to order them to stop playing it during football games uh, but and that uh, was only but, three years ago 
Yeah, that's that's very, and it's still they're still upset about it. I, I don't, I still don't think that's been completely resolved. I think they still don't play it. Um, and Ole Miss has had has had problems that way uh, for a while because they also had the mascot, well, you know, Colonel Reb. Uh, so, so those those matters are touchy at Ole Miss, and the KKK went to campus and protested. Um, so, you, the songs like Dixie and 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 the context they're presented in, in particular, still uh, you know have have these political contexts. Uh, you know, are still these political associations are still attached to them, even you know after all this time. It, it's difficult to divorce Dixie from its its Confederate associations, but also its. Uh, it's you know anti segregation or uh, sorry pro segregation associations and also it's it's white supremacist associations the, K- the KKK uses it at rallies um, so it's it's a it's much like the Confederate flag it's a politically weighted song uh, and I, I think it's it's difficult to to remove all that from it uh, after all these years and again no none of this intended by Daniel Decatur Emmett when he wrote it in 1859 just a dramatic example of how a, a piece of art uh, can can take on a, a you know a whole new life of its own, which is uh, you know, one of the main themes of the book, and, and really Dixie's just fascinating for that. So it, when you have uh, really it's a song where one verse is about pancakes, um, <laughs> and yet now it's a politically charged song that brings up memories of secession and segregation and, and so on. It really does show. Uh, how the artist has no control over what becomes of, of his or her art. Right. Once uh, it gets out there, who knows what people are going to do with it exactly. Who knows what they'll do. Well, now that your book is out here, I do hope people will go out and buy it and read it. We are unfortunately out of time, but I very much enjoyed reading this and learning about the music of the Civil War. And I know our, our listeners uh, as well will want to get a copy of Battle Hymns, The Power and Popularity of Music in the Civil War by Christian McWhorter, and it was a pleasure having you on the show today. Oh, it was a real pleasure being on the show today. I really, uh, I really enjoyed it, and, uh, and I, I'm, I, I look forward to hearing Bobby Horton when he's on, too. I know Bobby, and, and he's great, and he does a great job on all these songs. Well, that, that will be fun to hear, and we'll, we'll all have more to talk about then. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm.